thank you very much. It is nine o'clock Pacific here. So Mr. Hammond, you are in charge for the next 15 minutes. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much. And gentlemen, good morning and uh, welcome to Industry Week. Uh, you guys are uh, on the firing line right here. We're ready to lock and load <laughs> and make something happen. What do you think? Well, hello from good. Indianapolis, Indiana. I'm John from Chicago, Illinois. All right, guys. Well, so, uh, John, why don't you real quick, you know, I know we're going to be joined by some more folks, you know, as we move, move through the rest of this uh, 55 minutes that we've got. But uh, how about briefly tell me the history of Emco Gears and how they got into motorsports. I mean, I've been doing a little bit of back reading, but those for, haven't had the time maybe get on the Internet and check things out uh, or have history with you folks. Um, share it with us. Uh, yeah, so we started in racing. Uh, 1966 with uh, AJ Foyt racing. He was racing at the Indianapolis 500 um, and they were having trouble in years past with the gears. Um, so they went and contacted a customer of ours, McDonnell Douglas, uh, looking for some higher quality gears. So that's when we first started uh, making race gears for them, where we would take uh, designs that, that our engineers had had and uh, make the gears for them through processes that we we learned from back then through the uh, aircraft industry that we did. Um, and pretty much since then, we've had parts in the Annapolis 500 on different uh, forms. We've uh, done, you know, transmission gears. We've done complete transmissions. We've done drive shafts. We do, and we've done axle systems for customers there and steering systems there. So uh, a lot of gear parts and engine gears too uh, at the Annapolis 500. So. Um, that's kind of where we started um, in uh, October. Of, well, and, uh, one of the big things, my grandfather passed away in April of 1991. And then in October of 92, uh, my dad and my brother and I started working at MCO Gears. Uh, at that point, when I started there, we started uh, bringing in a lot of engineering stuff so where we would do design work um, for, for teams. So like back in, in Indy, uh, you'd have a customer uh, chief mechanic wanting something just a little bit different on his uh, brand uh, X transmission. And so he'd come to us with a, with an idea and we'd, you know, switch, uh, switch the design around a little bit, maybe change a, uh, you know, a snap ring and, and the shoulder on two different parts so that a mechanic could uh, take the gearbox um, apart and back together. Back, back then they were, you know, doing loads of gear changes like at Indy, every, every practice they'd go out, uh, in May, they'd come back and rechange the gears and get new gears. Um, so we'd have a garage there. Uh, W4 was our garage that we had for the longest time there. And so they'd come in and you know get different gears and go out and, and change things. Um, and then with all that engineering, we moved. You know, we did sports car stuff and NASCAR stuff. And uh, now a big push that we're in is in the uh, the Trans Am um, series. So we've been moving around. Anything else to add, Larry, to the history? No, I mean that's a that's a good good brief brief history. I mean there's so many little T's to cross mm -hmm. and I's to dot over the years. Um, a lot of people are unaware of the involvement that we had across the the motorsports platform. A lot of times we didn't have our name on the side of the transmission, but our products were in there. Sometimes known to people sometimes not known to people. You mentioned 
uh, Jock Villeneuve's 1995 PPG Championship. And yeah, so that was the same year that he won the 500. And maybe you could sprinkle a little bit of salt on that story. <laughs> well, that year, um, so we, uh, there are two things that were going on that year. One, we made a, uh, a new diff for him. So um, a right at that time, a lot of uh, viscous coupler differentials were coming out. But most, uh, and that was for, you know, teams that had a lot of money to spend to do that. But the smaller teams were running a Salisbury ramp style differential. Um, and a lot of times when they got on the power, um, they couldn't get the ramp angle. It would just lock the tires up right away. So it was hard to have control of the car through chicanes. So we designed uh, um, a differential that actually used the separating force of the spider and the planet um, to force the, the ramps apart. So it was... Um, not, it wouldn't lock the wheels completely like the Salisbury diff, but it was enough where you'd get some differentiation so that on chicanes, they could be on the power, um, and still be controlling the car through, through a chicane. So, um, I mean, it was really exciting for me as a fan to design it and then go up to, uh, to road America. Um, and he, uh, he and the Penske cars, um, I mean, they were, uh, half a second faster um, around the track. And it was just because in the chicanes it could do it. So um, it was exciting that, I mean, it was a lot of him, but to see our product out there and then win that race and and be there uh, at the track for it and then go home and tell my friend, oh yeah, what do you do? Well, yeah, you go watch the race. That, that's what I do. So, you know, very exciting to see that stuff. Um, they also had, um, that was a time where there was a huge transition um, in engine RPM. So before there started the season at, you know, like 8,000 RPM and ended the season at 14,000 RPM. So we were making a lot of gears because they were going to the track um, and engine RPM was changing. So we were able to, to make new change gears for them at different ratio and get them to the track um, before they went to the different tracks all along the way. So it was a very exciting season um, to be with them. The thing is kind of funny, you know, what you just guys have pointed out is, you're probably one of the best kept secrets in racing for a lot of years because your stuff was almost like proprietary. You know, people would, yep. you know, would get something done through your company, but they're not telling anybody. And I, I've often laughed and thought about the fact that in my way of thinking, it's almost like you took a lot of good drivers and met them great drivers because your product, number one, was much more, it was almost indestructible. And some of these guys were not as good at, at shifting as they needed to be or wheel hop or anything like that. But because of, you know, some of the improvements in your quality of the material, cut of your gear, you know, everything about it made some of these guys better road racers, especially, and gave us some durability in places where we needed it, uh, which, you know, in races and years before, we didn't have it. Would you agree? Yeah, definitely. Um, we are behind the scenes. I was just, you know, talking to Larry, um, but we're based in like problem solving little things, but most of our customers, um, in the auto racing, yeah, they, they, they want us behind the scenes. I think they want to solve those problems, uh, and, and don't really want to point out problems that they had or what, what we improved. So you just mentioned that. I don't think I'm going to go through the bus of some, some drivers that are out there, but yeah, wheel hopping, uh, um, older gears, uh, they they wouldn't survive one wheel hop. Now every every you know driver is going to have a wheel hop every once in a while. But when you can get something that's going to last three or four or five you know bad shifts going down into a pit from mm -hmm. fourth to third and and not wheel hopping, yeah, if they can do that and not have a failure. That's going to help them out a lot versus 
you know, one mistake and you're, you're they're out of the race. Um, so you know, we've done a lot, we've done a lot of, of help with, with, with drivers and, and teams. You know, speaking of that, of that help, you know, uh, John, what, what are some of the gear products that you guys make that, you know, have really kind of like, I feel like revolutionized the drivetrain? Um, well, one of the big things that we did, um, and it goes through like all of our stuff, but it comes down to the designing of the gear profile uh, in mm -hmm. itself. And we, you know, come from some, uh, a lot of engineering background and a lot of data that's been done, but um, the racing series is very, uh, very aggressive on, on gear. So they have, they have harsh situations where sometimes you don't have enough oil in the gearbox. You have to take a look at that. So we've, you know, designed the gears um, and changed the, the pitch and the pressure angle um, and selected oils um, that we can evaluate how large the OD um, of the gear should be to make sure that there's, um, there's rolling um, and sliding going on, but the gear is going to survive if they have a, um, a situation where they don't have oil. So we were at Pocono, um, one example, and yeah, the team forgot, this is just a test, but they forgot to put oil in the transmission and they went out and tested all day, 60 miles, uh, and had a successful test. And then they realized, wait a second, we didn't have any oil in the gearbox. So, uh, they were able to, to complete a day of testing because our gearbox was there and they wouldn't have to pull it off. I, uh, you know, other competitors, um, that would have ruined their whole test day. They would have gone out and in a lap and a half, they would have burnt their gearbox up and they'd come in and they'd been pulling the gearbox out of the car and resetting up the car and going back, you know, just some simple stuff like yeah. that by being able to, to design, to have something handle, you know, harsh conditions. That was just a practice, but races things happen all the time. Um, so, yeah. Okay. I want, I want to re-comment what I said. I don't want to be picking on the drivers also on, on mechanics and car chiefs that don't do their jobs like they should and check all the checklists off though. You know, Larry, I, you know, I see uh, you've got a little bit of a teaser sitting there behind you. Uh, with a box, uh, want to share that with us or give us some more insight sure. maybe from your perspective of it? Because I know sure. uh, Indianapolis is kind of uh, notorious for racers, and I'm sure you get a lot of people dropping by the shop all the time. Well, that's our latest and greatest five-speed sequential gearbox that we introduced in 2017 in the Trans Am series. Now, you're talking, is Chris on here? I don't know if Chris has joined us yet or not. I'm here, Larry. Hi. Okay, He's Chris, high. he can you he can <laughs> he can chime in here any, but I think Chris, you joined in 2018, I believe, was your first year. Yeah, that's right, and Larry. We've been running with you guys every year since 18. So in 2017, we introduced that gearbox. Um, you're talking uh, 76 pounds. You're talking uh, ex NASCAR engines. These guys have tuned these engines to turn almost 900 horsepower and amazing foot pounds of torque. You're talking about 2,450 pound car, um, no driver's aids. And we were fortunate enough to have a great team of, of Emco gear engineers. Um, and I'm lucky enough to have a great guy here in Indianapolis named Mick Austin, who, who just puts his head around everything we do. And we designed this and we went out, we won the championship the first year. We won the championship the second year. It's now in its fifth year. And it's won a, another championship with Chris. Um, the, the, the display piece we have behind me, if you look close enough, you can see what looks like a flywheel on the front right. of that. Can you, guys, can you guys see that? 
All right. I don't know if you can see it good enough, but it's on the, so that that particular is one of the latest models and it's called the, the, the reverse clutch model. A, a Trans Am TA car by design is very difficult to service the clutch. Uh, mm -hmm. We got there in 2017, guys were pulling the motors and losing a whole session to service their transmission, service their clutch, sorry. So we went to work and we said, hey, we've done a similar project in, in sports car, why don't we put the clutch on the front of the transmission? So all the guys gotta do is pull the, the transmission and then there's the clutch right there. You can service the clutch or you can, which up front happens to be the drop gears behind that cover. So you can service the drop gear not disturb the clutch. So that's the, that's the latest and greatest right there. That's pretty spectacular. I mean, the, the way that we've always kind of thought about transmissions in the race world, um, and again, I'm going back old school, you know, the T10s, the regular, you know, four speeds and everything, the Borg Warners that everybody had way back in the day. And I was looking through some of your product line, and I saw that one, and, I, and it made me stop and realize I didn't see anything that looked like a regular four-speed in y'all's product line. I'm not saying you don't make gears for them, but that's not the wave of the future. I mean, transaxles and, and, and everything that you're talking about, sequential gearboxes, um, it's, it's, the, it's the now of racing. I ain't going to say the future of racing, but it's the now of racing, and you guys no, it's the now. look like you got it covered. I like to think we have it covered. I mean, we've got a few things in the – in the burner right now, some, some mm -hmm. things that are going on behind the scenes um, that we're working on really hard to make sure that we're put ourselves in the right place at the right time, you know, when these doors open. So Chris, I know I can't see you, but I got to ask you from a driver's perspective and, and being associated with these guys for such a long period of time, Share some of your experiences and the pros and the cons of what you've run into from, from that side of the coin. Well, Jeff, I, I'm sorry I can't see you. I'm in a situation where my uh, screen isn't stable enough. Uh, but uh, no, I, we've, been, we've had a, enjoyed a, a very good few seasons with EMCO. And we've, we've worked very closely with Larry every single event um, and with Mick as well. Uh, you know, we've really uh, leveraged their at-track presence uh, they're integrated members of the team. And, uh, you know, we've, we've gotten to the point where, um, you know, as we've made engine development and made power and torque in different spots and we've made chassis improvements, uh, you know, the gearing needs uh, have changed. And, uh, you know, Larry has been right there with us. Uh, you know, the Trans Am series is very competitive. Uh, it's a series where development's still allowed. So uh, teams are making steps every single weekend. It's one of the few uh few few realms of the sport where uh, the teams are still uh, encouraged to innovate and in that respect you've got to make sure that your partners are on side and and uh larry larry and mick have been there every step of the way and i, I we, you know i'd like to think that we we've never been short of the gears that we need or the gear stacks that we need and and uh larry and his team is a big reason for that they were also extremely helpful for us, um, you know, having done a lot of gearbox servicing ourselves and having an, an in-house gearbox technician, uh, you know, at, at making sure that he was up to speed so he could do the maintenance for our two cars in between events. Uh, and that was a real hand in glove situation. Not all teams have the resource of having a transmission expert in-house. 
but uh, they, they worked very, very collaboratively the whole way. And I'd like to think that we both helped each other to improve. I agree. I th I'd like to add one no, more thing there. I, th I think one of the things that sets MCO gears on, on the highest level of, of, of what we design and what we build. I mean, we've got, it all starts with people. We've got great people um, that work for us. Mm -hmm. uh, we make great products. You know, we've got a great quality control system. Um, and you can put that all together and you can ship it out to a customer. And if, you, if, that's where, if that's where it ends and you stick the check in the bank, you know, you're, you, you're not always going to succeed. And one of the things that I learned um, starting when I took over um, the service department in 1998 here was that you got to be able to service support what you manufacture. And that goes hand and feet with, with everybody that we talk to and all the successes we've had. Um, you know, we it just people really appreciate the fact that you're there for them. You take care of them. Um, you, you're, if there's a problem, you know, you're, you're there to check it out. Hey, don't worry about it. When we get back, you know, the shop guys will be all over it. So that's one thing, you know, that I'm, I'm pretty proud of is, is that fact, that, that little fact. Well, guys, the, one of the things we're already getting a few questions and folks, I know we got folks out there that are, that are watching and, and listening. Don't be afraid to send us some questions for these guys. Uh, you know, Chris is here, even though we can't see him. And again, I appreciate you uh, hanging in there, Chris, because again, it's good to hear from you because you never know when somebody wants to know something that I can't answer because I'm not a professional race car driver or have that personal, I guess you might say, relationship with these guys like you do. But uh, John's already asking right now, what's, uh, what, is there any kind of recommended specific transmission fluid for your products and how often do you recommend changing it? And I'd say that's probably a pretty common thought, but I'm sure each one of these products has a different need. I mean, that brand new baby you got sitting there behind you, Larry, I mean, I'm sure it doesn't take a uh, 120 weight gear oil like we used to put in there. I bet you it takes something a little bit more, a little bit more sophisticated than that. I mean, it, it, there's, there's qualifying oils out there right now. There's guys running 16 weight, 15 weight. Um, mm -hmm. You probably remember from your NASCAR days hanging around there, guys, you, they try any, they put water in that thing for a qualifying, if you could make it live. You were supposed <laughs> to tell that kind of stuff. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we've been up and down that. I mean, for us um, in, in this particular model here, believe it or not, it's good old fashioned 7590 synthetic. Mm. Good old, like good old Mobile One, Motul. I see that they're sponsored in the background. They make a great product. Um, any of the high, high top end 7590s. And it's not, not, not to say that there's somebody out there who's doing something that we don't know about because it's still, it's wide open. But uh, that's, that's nothing trick there on that one. So, John, you know, you talk about your family and kind of like how you got started. Do you have an engineering degree or this on the job training for you and, and through through the history of, of the of the business? Uh, I am a physics and economics major from Michigan. Good to bring up the win we had over the weekend. <laughs> uh, but yes, uh, so that's not engineering. Um, uh, I plan to with my physics and economics, you know, work here to kind of manage engineers. So I'm kind of on the higher end. We have, you know, engineers here that I'm trying to help manage. So try and direct kind of projects um, 
um, but definitely pushing towards engineering. Like I said, uh, in 92, when I got here, uh, EMCO didn't have any engineering. We were really just making blueprints to people that were um, sending us the information and gear geometry and things like that. So um, definitely pushed in. I do uh, hands-on the uh, gear design stuff. So I was very involved in gear design stuff. Um, I do a lot of, uh, um, of decision-making and discussions on uh, making of the transmissions, but uh, we have uh, people that specialize in the you know, finite element analysis that has to get done on shafts. Um, so we uh, do 3D modeling and everything um, to, uh, to model our parts um, and that's come a long way. Um, so yes, so I do, do a lot of the engineering, but now it's, it's more managing the engineering and trying to get the big picture. Um, some engineers um, get caught in the small stuff. So you got to stay above it and get, get, the, get the answer that you need a lot of times. Um, you can get the answer pretty quickly, 80, 90% of the problem solved, and then you can focus that last little bit on the last 10, but, uh, but so I'm managing uh, the engineering. With that being said, what's the most important part of, of when you're doing a new project like that and coming up with the, was, is it the right size of gear, the heat treatment gear, the pitch of the, of the tooth? I mean, all of these, I mean, how does this, you know, how did this product that, that Larry's got back here, that sequential gearbox, how did it come about? And how long did it take for it to get to where, you know, you're racing it like right now and you have the, the, the complete, complete confidence that, you know, Chris and his group can go out and win with it? Um, yeah, so, so the big thing uh, is early on collecting the data and understanding what, what the customers uh, and what's going on in the series. Um, like Chris had mentioned, Tran, uh, Trans Am is great because they're still uh, letting teams develop stuff. So you can get input from, from your customer and from their, their engineers and, and who's developing the car. So trying to collect all that data, what, uh, you know, what is what weight of the car? What, what kind of horsepower are they planning to go? What kind of tires are they, are they planning to use? Um, you kind of mentioned that question. What kind of gear oils do they want to use? You can design right. the gears around, well, yeah, all these people, are they going to use 7590? Are they all, no, we all want this, this trick stuff that's much thinner and lighter. Well, you go, we got to take a look at the gear design then because we can change the pitch and the pressure angle and some of that, that rolling diameter. Um, so early, early on, it's, it's that stuff. Um, also, um, how they plan on shifting it. How, how much shifting do they do? Are they... Um, when we early got on, got there, they were just getting into shift without lift with a carbureted engine. So there was a big bang every time they would just pull, pull the thing back and, and just let fuel flow in and, and just cut the spark. And um, it would be a big bang every time the shift with explosion yeah. out of the exhaust pipe because they had the fuel. So we're going to know, we've got to try and figure out what, what are we going to do better? How, how are we going to improve their, their shift and improve these gears realizing well, that's going to happen. That can that can destroy a, a drivetrain having a big explosion after they um, after they dump a bunch of fuel in there on that cut, shift cut stuff. So a lot of engineering earlier on, um, a lot of knowledge from the past. Like we do, uh, we talk about engineering on that project, but just learning stuff uh, in our machining. So we have you know CNC machines, and you go to the different tool manufacturers, and and you learn. Wow, they've designed a um, a boring bar that can. Um, can reduce uh, vibration and dampening. So this allowed us to take, before we were like, no way, we're not putting that hole in there, you know, five inches, it's gonna have chatter at the bottom. Well, now we realize you've got tooling and, and new machines and, and greater control over your machine to, oh yeah, we can put that in and, and we'll have perfect 
you know, finish all the way down to the bottom of that deep hole. So now you can lighten it up and not worry about uh, tool marks or chatter that historically, you know, like we see people bring us shafts that have broken. It was just because, yeah, machining, you know, wasn't there in a deep hole that used to be really hard to do. And they're trying to take some extra, extra weight out. So we work on our engineering from not just what the customer wants, but from our uh, manufacturing engineer to bring processes and, and techniques that, that we've learned to, to the fruition as, as we see other, other things happening. I haven't asked anybody this question, you know, throughout this entire season, because I had an opportunity, but it seems like this might be a proper place to ask. When you design something and you want to put it into, you know, like you do a 3D on it, can, can you design a transmission and then wind up put it into a, a, a simulation where you could practice with it and not, not have a real one? Is that doable uh, today's, today's technology? Um, you mean simulating on a computer the transmission? We can. Yes. 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 We, we, we can. So, I mean, like, like what I'm saying is you, you could give that and Chris could be running it and he could get some kind of feel on a, on a simulation type deal. Am I, am I stretching it too far here? You're stretching that a little too far. We haven't, we haven't gone too far. Uh, I'm not sure, Chris, do you use a driver simulation? Um, but I know there's out there, but we've, we haven't done that with anyone. We do use simulation on our end to, uh, to evaluate the, the gear train and the gearbox, but it hasn't come to like a full-on car where Chris would get on a, on a, in a simulator and, and know this is our new gearbox and how it would feel. So we haven't gotten that far yet, um, but that is a direction to go for sure. Yeah. Well, what about uh, Chris and Larry? You get this, uh, you get a new transmission and you want to go test it. Tell us about going testing and what, and what you're usually looking to do when you get to the racetrack. And is there a racetrack that you want to go to more than another because it gives you variables uh, that other tracks don't give, where you kind of cover the whole gamut in one racetrack? Is there one to go, it's ideal to go test at? Chris, Jeff, go that's, ahead. That's, Jeff, that's a great question. You know, I think with the yeah. torque profile of our engines, you would think we'd be able to force speed and be happy everywhere. But, uh, mm -hmm. you know, there's a, a lot of the tracks that have a broad variety of, uh, of, of corners that, you know, ultimately I think Trans Am's schedule is made up of probably the most classical venues um, of really anybody's schedule in North America. So there, there's not a lot of tracks uh, that are, you know, particular uh, or quirky uh, that are on our schedule. Uh, yeah, having said that, with as much horsepower as we're running um, and the fact that the Trans Am cars are, uh, you know, not overly stuck with downforce, um, you know, we've benefited from running a five-speed at pretty much all tracks. So it's, it's really a question of, of managing the torque delivery um, you know, because keeping the tire pressures on the rears is so vital and trying to keep tire life is so important. But at the same time, you want to have that, that torque burst when you need it. So, um, you know, we, we've, we've been able to build a good cookbook where we've got, a, I, I think, a good range, but it, it all tethers to whatever the top speed is. And, you know, some of these tracks were upwards of 190, 200 miles an hour you know, you're going to need a pretty broad range of gears if you're going to five speed. And I think that Larry and Mick have been able to help us find that balance um, for torque delivery and also getting the right gear split. So that way we're never really out of the power band. I think one of the, one of the unique things about this, this transmission here is it utilizes 
a slip-on first gear, which a lot of a lot of transmission manufacturers design around a first gear being made on on a shaft, and it kind of limits your the scope of the range for a first gear. With what we the way we've designed this transmission, you're able to take 110, 120 mile an hour first gear, for example, at like when we were at Daytona, and you're able to put that in the in the car again. And you got to get out of the pits with it too, so it can be challenging at times. But that way, you're you're able to run it as a, as an actual true true five speed, and that's one of the things, uh, one of the big advantages we we have over the competition right now is is guys can gear that thing for five five speeds on the track. Well, let's ask you this, ask this question here. Uh, Todd Lacey would like to know. Are you guys able, I think I already know the answer, but are you able to rebuild vintage racing gear sets? And again, I'm not sure what his demand is here as far as, you know, what type of vintage car he's referring to, because I can't imagine that as long as it's not, uh, you know, some kind of 1941 something, you may have have everything covered otherwise. Well, I can answer John if you don't. I can answer, and I know what John's going to say. And it and it it can be 1940, it can be 1913. John might be able to tell you how far some of the old gears that we've made for historic, you know, guys that have restored cars. But the answer is absolutely yes. And that's one of the things that we do besides our our big transmission projects is is we've made gears for Ferraris and Alfa Romeos and ringing pinions for you know these these cars that they nobody can get parts anymore for them. We uh, redid the uh, transmission for a 1954 Ferrari that was at Le Mans. And then in 2000, I went to the racetrack and he ran the historics and he, he got in an accident on turn one. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> uh, it, and it costs a lot of money. But yeah, we do do historic stuff. And uh, and it's very exciting to watch those cars. I mean, it, it, it's great to see those out there running. But uh yeah, you know, with looking at the uh, the number of associations and and that are affiliated with your company, do do both of y'all find yourself you know traveling all over the world because of it? I mean, you know, you do Trans Am, you do IndyCar, you do IMSA, you know, you've got, I mean, you got stuff going on all the time. I mean, you even make a, a two speed gear gearbox for a Silver Crown Silver Crown car. So, you know, it's like. Would it be unusual to find you or your company being represented at, at a dirt track or at Le Mans, you know, here up in 2022? Is it going to be is, is something like that? You guys at the racetrack a lot. Well, we're at the racetrack, and I'm talking about the Indianapolis team a lot. Uh, a dirt track, you're going to see me there, but I'm going to have maybe a cold beer and a, some popcorn. Uh, be attending as a spectator you know I really enjoyed the SRX series this year watching uh, Ernie Francis who who actually drove the car the TA car in 2017 and 2018 and and won those two championships and get in that car and do that um, no dirt tracking for us right now the two speed was just a bit filled in uh, when the silver crown cars were running with the IRL at the big two mile tracks mm-hmm well, number one, thank you for, for saying that about the SRX, because I had an opportunity to, to work with, with Ernie and uh, first class individual. 
uh, very talented, yeah. adaptable. And uh, I really, uh, it was a, I guess you might say a treat for me to be around somebody that, you know, just you coach him up a little bit and he's got the, uh, the incentive, but at the same time, the common sense to know how to approach something and, and get the best out of it. He did a really, really good job and, and represented um, the Trans Am series and, and his, his overall natural ability very well this past season. I think Chris would probably comment that there were a lot of times in this year, they had some mechanical problems, but he definitely, definitely kept you honest, right, Chris? Oh, every step of the way. And I think that's vice versa. You know, uh, yes, we've had some yeah, absolutely. he and I have had some tremendous battles the last few years. And, uh, you know, I think we both helped raise each other's games. Well, guys, we just, and we touched it down on the SRX deal, but is there anything else? Cause you know, you started John, John talking about how your history got you into the industry you're in you know, with A.J. Foyt calling you. I'm just wondering if that's the, the one we saw at Indy that year when he got out with the hammer and, and the, the, the the long pull bar and everything like that was beating on it. Was was that where you guys came in and, and saved the day or saved somebody's job? Because uh, I don't think A.J., you know, we all know that if A.J. gets upset, he is very upset. <laughs> <laughs> We've had a long history with A.J. He's been upset with us, too. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> He does. He does. Uh, he's very demanding. That's for sure. But yeah, <laughs> it's fun to see the energy that he has at the track. Uh, he's he's got a passion. He's got a passion like uh, like no no other driver I've ever had the privilege of being around or watching. And and again, just to say that I know him, you know, makes me feel somewhat um, lucky. And at the same time, uh, lucky that I never went to work for him. <laughs> but. Uh, you know, the thing is about, you know, your company and where you're taking it and everything, what, what is, what is the next, what's going to be the next step? I mean, really, are we going to see a lot of this product that we are used to seeing at the snowball derby or where Chris is racing? What's, what's going to be the next step? Is everybody eventually going to get away from the old solid rear ends and, and go transaxles and, Sequential transmission, is that what's going to happen? Uh, yes, I do think that, uh, that transaxle and sequential shifting. Um, I think there's going to be um, a, a lot of um, uh, questions put on to uh, the shift lever itself and paddle shifting. I know a lot of high-end supercars have paddle shifting, but I still think mm -hmm. with a lot of grassroots, there still is going to be a lot, a lot of fan fan base that's going to want to see a shift lever and want to really see people um, use it using the shift lever. Um, so um, keep some driver stuff in there, but the uh, the sequential shift mechanism, um, some electronics in our um, shift without lifting to help assist the driver. But I think they're still going to want to see some a lot more you know driver input. It's not it's racing is not going to be about letting a computer control all your shifts and and all that stuff. So. Um, there's still going to be some some manual um, kind of mechanism that's going to have to stay involved in racing. That's what I still see happening. Um, but it's working with the uh, with uh, the teams um, and sanctioning bodies to see what's going to be the best uh, fit for them. So, what do you think about that, Chris? I mean, you know, from your viewpoint as far as an owner and a driver. Uh, 
where does the racing series themselves need to put their foot down? Because as John pointed out, and I'm sure, you know, that Larry feels the same way. You guys could make a computer shift this some gun if you want to. You know, you basically all you got to get do is sit in there and steer it. And to me, that's not real racing. I mean, that you, you take too much of the human element out, and all of a sudden we we change the sport dramatically. I think one of the central appeals of Trans Am racing in TA1 and TA2 is that you know driver input matters, you know, a lot more than it does in the series where there's uh, the driver aids, um, whether that's the uh, the ABS, the paddle shifts, traction control, um, you know, Trans Am still celebrates the driver as a central part of success. And yeah, you can build spaceships, and I, I've raced them. I mean, I've, I've I've we had a lot of success in uh, in prototypes, and I would never say I was less of a human when I was driving those cars. Um, I mean, the performance ceiling was through the roof. And I think by and large, the guys that had their act together who had done the best job still won the races. But I think that, uh, you know, Trans Am has always been about, um, you know, kind of taming the beasts for lack of a better term. And, and, and I think when you start to uh, take away some of the variables that separate, um, the, the, you know, the good drivers from regular drivers, you know, not making mistakes and, and executing uh, the inputs manually is a big part of the story. And, and, you know, that's why I, you know, in a lot of ways, I consider my Trans Am championship and my Trans Am wins to be so significant. Um, I'm also old enough to remember what it was like to have to change gear when I came up in racing, a lot of the paddle shifting and, and uh, automated uh, electronics were still kind of just in F1. And, uh, you know, for me, it was a throwback to go back to the old way, but I think there's, there's still a lot to be said for, you know, the human element of, uh, of making it happen. And, you know, obviously when you look at NASCAR, you know, they've, 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 they've built an entire franchise around, uh, you know, cars that, uh, are still very much, you know, reliant on the driver making the right inputs and not making mistakes. And I think, uh, you know, you, you don't, you don't, uh, fix what's, what ain't broken as the saying goes. Hey guys, are you still able to hear me okay? No, you're doing fine. Good. Are you good? My technology, my AirPods went dead, so I just wanted to make sure not I'm on microphone. No, you're you're doing fine, and uh, I can appreciate that. I think that a lot of us, uh, I got my volume here on my computer up as loud as I can get it, so I can make sure I don't miss anybody <laughs> talking to me. Uh, I guess you got to say price we pay for uh, the uh, the job we love, but. <laughs> When you, when you go back and you, you touch you touching all of this stuff that we're looking at with the technologies and now NASCAR making a big step toward modern racing, I guess I'd say, uh, and they're still kind of hanging on with the uh, Xfinity and the trucks and the rest of their uh, series, you know, being pretty much basic for four speed, nothing, you know, nothing elaborate. But now with this one, um, did I mean, I got to ask the question, you know, did, have you discussed anything or you guys talked to people in NASCAR about some of the pros and cons of what they're getting into? Well, John and I spent a fair amount of time. Was it, it was 2017, right, John? Yeah. Down there uh, talking with the powers to be. And, you know, we were, we bid on the uh, transactional and we were, we were uh, one of the three finalists and we were came in second place was just the first loser, unfortunately, but we were able to, 
to listen to them. And one of the things that they were adamant about was the fact that the driver still was going to be stick shift in the car. And they wanted that in-car camera. They wanted, even though it wasn't going to be an H pattern, they were going to be pulling back and forth on it. They wanted the, they wanted the fans to be able to see the driver shift in the car. And, uh, you know, we, we said, yeah, but not everybody knows how to drive a stick shift. Not everybody knows how to throttle blip. And, you know, it goes back to Chris and Chris is a good driver who can drive a stick shift car without the aids is probably, you know, those guys, are going to fall into the winner winner category and then we think you know there possibly could be this category of a, of a big learning curve i don't think on the oval so much but i think when they go to the road courses um but anyways we we tried a little bit to push them in in the direction of maybe putting um uh, paddles switches on a stick and so that way the computer could control it and and because nascar also says you know we don't want 15 or 20 guys falling out of the race with the transmission problem. We want all of our cars to finish. And if they finish, it's going to be because they crashed because as they told us, we crash a lot of cars. <laughs> so, um, so we, we kind of, we, we have taken that stick shift theory and we moved it to um, an opportunity in Trans Am 2. Um, we call it our, our para para power. Um, it's an opportunity for a, driver, uh, paraplegic, whether he has no use of his legs or his lower torso or he's missing to be able to get into a TA2 car and to be able to operate that and, and operate on a competitive level where nobody says, oh, he has an unfair advantage. So that's, that, that, that's just, I had to share the stick shift story with you because it, it kind of started out as one of mixed ideas and then it just took off and it's, it's, Gained a lot of traction. Well, it, it sounds to me like, you know, as I said earlier, you guys are taking a lot of drivers and made them better racers because of the, with your technology and, and this, the common sense approach about how you do something. And in the end, you have complimented everybody, I think, in every series around the world one way, shape, or form. And I think it's really uh, a tribute to y'all. And, and Chris, you know, when, when you see and you hear NASCAR talking about what they're doing and what they don't want to have happen, um, what kind of advice can you reach out and tell those guys, you know, from somebody who sits behind that wheel and who's drawn, driven, you know, some of the most elaborate technology in today's world as far as racing is concerned? I don't have to give advice to any of the guys that are running the top levels of NASCAR. I mean, you're talking about, you know, one of the deepest talent pools, uh, you know, in the world there, stem to stern. Uh, it would be presumptuous for me to, to tell these guys what they've got to do. I mean, uh, it, they, they're going to all figure it out really quickly. They've got great teams of people around them. And, uh, you know, I think it's going to come down to what kind of show it puts on. Uh, these drivers always rise to the challenge. Um, you know, you only have to look at, uh, you know, Kyle Larson. You know, he went to Daytona mm -hmm. the first time to run the 24 hours with uh, Chip Ganassi. And I think in the first day or so was as quick as Dario, Franchitti and Scott Dixon were doing. And Kyle hadn't done a lot of road racing up to that point. But, uh, you know, the, 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 the cream rises to the top. And I think these guys are going to figure it out quickly. And, and uh, you, you never have to worry about the, the level of aptitude. 
at that level of the sport. Well said. Um, yeah. We've got another uh, question this time from John, and he said he was a little bit, a little bit late tuning in. So if, uh, if this has already been addressed, which it hasn't, but he's talking about, you know, the, the treatments to the surface of the gears that you guys uh, do to help, you know, uh, fractional improvements as far as, you know, from, you know, the, the friction and everything goes into it. And he made the comment that he's used carbon coatings uh, in many of his engines and a lot of times great success with that. Do you guys do anything more than just polish gears uh, to get, you know, the performance uh, enhancement to your product? Um, so uh, for the surface treatment, we uh, do shot peen them and then polish them, the, the rim polish process. Um, we also, as a heat treat process, um, they get cryogenically treated. So that's kind of going on. Um, as far as coatings, um, normally I would want to know what kind of oil you're using and what kind of problem you're trying to solve and take a look and see what would be the best solution to solving that problem. Uh, as a kind of a general rule, um, there are some good coatings on there, but I'm not for just throwing coatings on gears just because you can. Um, you really want to see what's going to solve a problem. We have in the past, and this is where I come back from solving uh, on another competitor's gearbox, um, they were uh, burning up uh, dog rings and forks um, just mm -hmm. because the design, you know, wasn't, wasn't quite there and they had some issues inside their gearbox with Fleck. Um, but in like that situation, it was like, yeah, it looks to me like like coating that um, with the carbon coat or the, the diamond-like coatings was going to help solve that problem. Um, the problem was the you know the fork running, the dog ring. Once it engages, it shouldn't be really having any friction there, but that gearbox was. So this did solve that problem of heat that was getting created, uh, and it's a good short-term solution for that problem with the coatings. I would I would go on to retake a look, and, and in our design, we spend a lot of time with the with the fork placement. Um, and dog ring placement that has to do with uh, when you you know set up the gearbox at the mechanic level versus you know your 3D modeling the design and seeing all your uh, um, all the tolerance stack ups and and making sure that your uh, your prints are all accurate so that you're holding tolerances that when everything stacks up you don't have something in, in the wrong spot. So we spend a lot of time with that to try and solve that problem um, for them. You know, making new shift drums in that case, making new forks for them after you know we kind of solve the problems they have. So. Most part, I look at there are coatings. They do do a lot. Look at the problem of why you think you have to have it. Um, I mean, and I, I mean, I also know you know some, sometimes you can have it like those. When I talk about those engine RPMs, that was all coating. There's a lot to do with coatings that allowed them to take a normally aspirated engine and get it sprinting at you know 14,000 RPM. That's a, that's only going to happen with coatings. Not, not, you can't. The materials aren't there for that. So there are specific things where coatings need to happen. But as far as in the gearbox. I try to take a look and see what problem's going on. Is there a gear um, design problem that's not allowing it to, to be working with the right oil that they want, um, or or things like things like that? Why why things are rubbing? Why 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 are you creating all that heat? Because um, hey, heat something hey, you want to get rid of. Sorry, hey John, explain yeah. to them the the people that are listening out there a little bit about. Uh, we just don't hob a gear. Explain to them a little bit what happens after we have the gear and how we get that that finish on there. Um, okay. well, yeah. So we, we do we we have the gear to rough the rough the uh, the shape out there. Uh, we send it to get heat treated. Um, when we're heat treating, we want to minimize distortion. You when you're going to our final process, which would be gear grinding, 
Um, we want to make sure we're not taking off. You want to take off the least amount of material as you can because the, the surface from the heat treater that's close to the outside has a lot of compressive stress, which really helps um, handle higher loads. So you don't want to remove too much material. Um, so then we profile grind it. So we use a CNC grinder um, to put the shape on we, that we want to have on there. Um, and then in our inspection, so we use a Zeiss. So we're very um, specifically controlling the involute um, and modifying it. So we're able to go back in the design uh, and remove some material. Um, if a, you know the gears are gonna be in an overloaded condition most of the time while they're racing, um, you wanna add tip relief. But it's very important to get the amount of tip relief you want because you still need to have the contact ratio and you need to have um, a shape on the tips of your tooth and in the root of your tooth um, to allow for um, a strong hydrodynamic film to be created because the oil sitting there, these are EP additive oils. So it's a chemical reaction that really is going to get them um, to separate the, the two steel from colliding. So you need to create kind of a ramp in and a ramp out effect so that you can make sure the chemical reaction happens um, right before the load gets put on. So um, we look at our design very specifically on the, on the grinding to help alter the profiles. Listening to all this about coatings and everything, uh, I wanted to pose this question because we talked about lubrication or non-lubrication, like you like you mentioned earlier, with it poking or running a transmission with no grease in it or oil. Um, by today's standards, do you if something you know I get product from you? Do you recommend like a cooling system? Do you have a way you would like to see you know for a long range uh, you know racer for like twenty four hour, twelve hour, six hour? Do you recommend a cooling system to circulate the oil? Uh, well, I'll, I'll go ahead, John. We want to, we, we want the trans, if I had my way, there'd be a cooler that would be sticking up on the hood of the car with a rock guard over it. And the transmission would always stay about 180 degrees Fahrenheit. <laughs> and I can see Chris snickering right now, but from an engineering point of view, that's, that's hard to do. And the, the, the better you hide the cooler, um, and to answer your question, yes, we do. We, we recommend a cooler um, that usually the, the car manufacturer dictates that testing dictates that um, the Trans Am cars have electric fans. Um, we have a customer Sundry Racing that races an, uh, an Oldsmobile and SVRA, uh, Steve Cohen and Paul Fixter over the car. Uh, they just they won their uh, class and overall class D. Uh, and that's a, uh, is a, is a Trans Am car, but it was made for endurance racing, racing. And it was a GT something back in the day. I don't remember, but it was, it was a proper endurance IMSA racing car. And that, that transmission is designed for long racing. So that, that's cooled. They've got it in a good spot and it, it runs cool. But these Trans Am cars, they get, they get really hot. They push, they push them to the limit of the oil every race for sure. Well, thank you for that, Larry. And gentlemen, it has been a pleasure. Unfortunately, I see the monitor has come back on the screen. You know, Francis is here and has let us know that we're, our time has uh, elapsed. And again, Chris, sorry I couldn't see you. Pleasure talking to you. John, thank you very much. And guys, thank you for making the sport of racing what you have with your product, your determination, and your uh, perfectionism when it comes to the product that you do bring to the table. Because again, I've had experience with your gears and 
I said it in the very beginning. I'll say it again. You made a lot of good race car drivers, great race car drivers. So keep up the good work. Thank you. Thank you. The concept for EPAR trade is basically, in my opinion, there's a big hole in the internet. So the internet started many years ago, but there's never been an online business community for racers on the World Wide Web. The need for EPAR trade is actually quite obvious. Basically, people in the business of auto racing need a place online to hang out and get their problems solved. It's extremely simple for a buyer or for a supplier to interact on the platform. The first thing you need to do is sign in, which is free. And the second thing is when you see a product that you're interested in, all you need to do is click on request more information. If it's a company, you click on request more information. And then from there, it is forwarded directly to the buyer or to the supplier. You can go to epartrade.com, you become part of a community of businesses in racing, and it makes uh, sourcing products much easier than just on the internet or using Google. At epartrade, there is no e-commerce. It's literally a connection just like at a trade show. So now, any time of the year, a buyer could reach out to a supplier through an email. More than that, it's a place to go just to keep current every day. So it's a good place to start your workday in your racing business or in your offices of your professional race team. And you know you're current when it comes to new technology, industry news, technical papers, technical videos, all of that and more. We're not looking for a million hits per day. All we want is people who are really the volume buyers of racing products in the racing industry to be part of the little world of EPART trade. We have racing businesses participating from around the world. So you get suppliers from around the world, you get buyers from around the world. EPAR Trade really eliminates having to travel, closing down your shop. Now you have a place to showcase globally your racing product and technology. There are two types of people, racers and everyone else. Racer Magazine is for those who believe that racing is a way of life. Racer embodies the excellence that defines a sport driven by passion, courage, and ingenuity. Get one year of both Racer's print and digital edition for only $39 with instant access to our entire digital issue archive. Subscribe now at info.racer.com.